Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Grand Round series for Connecticut Children's. Uh, it's great to have all of you back online. Uh, this is the way we are now getting used to seeing each other. So hopefully everyone is, is doing well. Uh, this uh, pandemic continues and uh, we are, are here to provide the services that you need, providing information, timely topics, um, and giving you a, a ray of hope that things are getting better, that will continue to get better. Um, I do want to recognize all the people at uh, Connecticut Children's that make this possible uh, in academic affairs and our corporate communications, uh, just to make sure that we are able to connect with you on a, on a daily basis. A number of events do happen. Uh, so please check our website for all the information that is available for you to log in. You can always go back and look at the recordings uh, for each of the Grand Rounds and the uh, Ask the Expert, Ask the Expert uh, uh, series that we usually have on Fridays. And there are a number of webinars that occur in different days uh, with uh, our own Dr. John Schreiber, who has been called our own Dr. Tony Fauci. So that's a, that's a good thing to have. Uh, today we have, uh, uh, again, a very special Grand Rounds that is uh, very much aligned with, uh, with the era uh, of telemedicine, telehealth, telecommunications. Uh, the topic is digital media and parent-child interactions. I think that's quite, uh, quite relevant for, uh, for today's topic. Uh, I don't think it was planned specifically that way, but it's going to work really, really well. A couple of updates on, uh, on the pandemic in children. There was a, an MMWR report that just came out today uh, uh, and is giving us a little bit of a uh, a glimpse of uh, how this disease is affecting children. And the CDC reports that for uh, the, uh, the first six weeks of the, of the pandemic and the, and the, in the United States, uh, there have been 2,572 children that have been diagnosed uh, or at least uh, identified as having coronavirus in their nasopharynx. Uh, that's 1.7% of the total, uh, the total population. So while we, we do say that the disease doesn't affect children uh, as, as it does adults, it is important to understand that, that, in fact, we do have a number of children, 2,572. Here at Connecticut Children's, we have admitted four children uh, to our uh, inpatient areas. Uh, two of them have been discharged and are doing well. Uh, two remain in the hospital, and one was admitted to the intensive care unit. Uh, that patient, fortunately, uh, is, is doing better, uh, better every day, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to discharge that patient from the ICU to the inpatient units. Um, uh, our teams have been prepared, they're ready, they're doing what they need to do. I, I'm just so proud of what they have done uh, over the past, uh, you know, four to six weeks. And, uh, it, you know, it is, it is quite different when you actually have to go into a room and, and be prepared for that. And uh, so for our neonatologists, for our perinatologists, for our intensivists, uh, for our, uh, our hospital medicine folks, our ED folks, our nurses, respiratory therapists, uh, our environmental services people, and everyone who's involved, I want to thank you. Thank you for, for your bravery. Thank you for taking care of children. And thank you to all our pediatricians and all our subspecialists for providing the care they, they have done through telemedicine. We've uh, ramped up the number of visits uh, into the thousands, which is really nothing less than remarkable. So, so thank you again. That's just, uh, I cannot be uh, more grateful. Today, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Rob Ketter to, uh, to introduce uh, our speaker. Uh, our speaker is uh, logging in directly from Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, so, and this is probably going to be the new norm uh, for, for all of us. Um, uh, and, and Rob, I think all of you know, Rob was made for, for this media. He, you know, he's one of, I'm not sure he's quite a millennial, but I, he almost feels like a millennial. Maybe he is, I don't know. Uh, and, and, you know, he's somebody who connects uh, beautifully through, uh, through, through this media. Uh, he, he really, I think he was, he was created uh, digitally at some point, and so um, he's almost an avatar, if, if I'm going to call that, you know, uh, Dr. Ketter. And Dr. Ketter, uh, who is in the Division of Developmental Pediatrics, um, you know, is going to introduce our speaker, who will give us a presentation on digital media and parent-child interactions. At the end of the presentation, we will have time for questions. Is the best way that it, that works if you actually send them to us uh, through the chat mode, uh, and we'll read them. If we can't get them, uh, then we will go ahead and, uh, and email you back the response. So, um, Dr. Ketter, if you can uh, please come in and introduce the speaker. Thank you, Juan. Good morning. Um, and I think I would ascribe to being a digital immigrant, or, or excuse me, digital native is the term, whereas many of others might be digital immigrants. Um, and I will also ascribe to the New York Times article that claims I'm a zennial, because we're in that like little mix between, you know, two generations, but I'll take it. Um, uh, I am super happy and excited to introduce Dr. Jenny Radeski. She is a developmental and behavioral pediatrician at the University of Michigan Medical School. Um, and she received her medical doctorate from Harvard Medical School. 
She trained at Seattle Children's Hospital, and she also trained at Boston Medical Center, where we were both co-fellows in developmental and behavioral pediatrics. Uh, clinically, her work focuses on underserved and low-income populations. She was the lead author for the American Academy of Pediatrics um, policy statement and guidelines on media use by young children, published in 2016. And her research examines mobile technology use and family interactions. Um, I'm very excited and happy to introduce Dr. Jenny Rodeski, who is an excellent educator, colleague, mentor, friend, mother, and researcher. Thanks so much, Jenny. Take it away. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Rob. Um, I, uh, it's so nice to be introduced by someone who we've been through so much <laughs> together and um, by someone who, uh, you know, I really appreciate your, Dr. Ketter's uh, commitment to the, the environmental and um, contextual influences on children's health. Um, the ones that we both cared a lot about in fellowship was uh, poverty and adversity in children's outcomes, but I'm going to be talking today a little bit about another aspect of children's environments um, that is our, their digital environment. Um, so, but first, before I get started, I just wanted to thank just the whole, you know, committee of folks who've been um, helping arrange this, even with the switch-ups due to COVID. Um, Nicole and Elizabeth have been so helpful over email. Um, you know, Dr. Milanese and Dr. Salazar just for inviting me and making the space for me to be able to share this knowledge. Um, I do think um, it's a really nice um, reprieve for me to be able to share this knowledge right now at a time that all of us are so busy worrying and um, preparing and caring for folks during rapidly changing times. So I just appreciate the ability to come together, share some knowledge, think about how we can support families during this time as their lives are kind of immersed in digital media um, at home. So thank you for the introduction, Rob. Um, I do want to disclose that I, um, I have a financial relationship with Melissa and Doug Toys. I've been working with them as a consultant um, since last year, 2019. And um, basically that role involves uh, writing blog posts for their website. We, we do a lot to talk about what to do when you're stuck inside. Um, I also write summaries for New England Journal of Medicine, Journal Watch Pediatrics, and Adolescent Medicine for DBP articles. Um, I just started receiving funding from Common Sense Media um, to do an analysis of kids' YouTube viewing habits. Um, and last year, I wrote articles for PBS Carrots blog. So, so one of my goals, as you can see from a lot of the work I've done outside of um, the medical school, is I want to translate this knowledge so it's accessible for parents and kind of gets into their hands as fast as possible. It's such a rapidly changing uh, research study topic. So today, I really want to talk about um, the novel forms of digital technology. These are mobile, these are interactive, and they have a very different impact on family life. And I'm going to be talking about specifically how parent technology use uh, interrupts or displaces parent-child activities and potential effects on child development and behavior. I'll talk a little bit about children's di digital design as well and the aspects of persuasive design that take our attention and kind of lead our behavior or nudge it in one direction or another. Um, and then I'm hoping at the end of this you feel a little bit more confident in addressing media use during clinical counters using approaches that really meet the parents where they're at. As you'll notice, I don't talk about the term screen time. I don't use it in any of my research. I don't use it in any of the methods that I use, mostly because it is such a unidimensional concept. Um, just the duration of what you're doing doesn't take into account the child's characteristics. We know children are wired so differently. It doesn't take into account the content of what children are watching, the design of what they're watching, and whether it's leading them on to watch episode after episode. It doesn't take into account the context, either the psychosocial context or the parent-child relational context. So those are the things that I've chosen to focus on in my um, approach towards research. And I'll discuss the rationale for why I've really chosen to research digital media through an early childhood relationship lens. Um, this is different from the ways that a lot of health uh, researchers have studied media when they've looked at screen time as you know, an exposure that is correlated with different health outcomes such as obesity or sleep problems. Um, I am looking at more as how it kind of fits into the parent-child dyads, day-to-day um, -day activities, um, routines, and interactions. And I think it's really important that we focus on some of the design affordances of modern digital media 
that really insert themselves into those parent-child cascades on a daily basis. So now that uh, media are mobile and portable, it's very different than a TV sitting in a room. And I'll talk a bit about the, the design, the interactive and persuasive design that is meant to interact with our psychology and sometimes um, you know, tap into some of our psychological weaknesses uh, to get us to consume more or to tap more. And then I'll sum up by talking about some of what we as pediatric and early childhood providers can do to support families with such a rapidly uh, changing digital media experience. So I first got interested in uh, the role of early childhood in life course well-being um, when I was in med school at Harvard. And Neurons to Neighborhoods was published and I actually bought a copy and read it because I was so fascinated in how we have the potential to invest in early childhood as a way of really improving people's life course outcomes. I was seeing families or, or individuals in adult psychiatry clinic realizing there was, it was so much harder to change their outcomes at that point. And many of them were telling stories of trauma or parents with mental health issues or other adversity in early childhood. And we know from the ACEs research that early adversity is such an important predictor of both health and psychological outcomes. Um, so, so that's why I pursued a residency in pediatrics. It's why I felt that this is one of the most hopeful um, and uh, meaningful periods in uh, much of the life course. And I was very influenced at the time by um, the, the Center on the Developing Child at Harvard had just been founded by Jack Shankoff, who was the lead author of that Neurons to Neighborhoods report. Um, this really resonated with me because as Dr. Ketter and I um, experienced later in, um, in fellowship is we realized there were so many children who had multiple sources of toxic stress in their early childhood experiences. So they may have had homelessness, food insecurity, um, a parent who was incarcerated, a parent who was addicted to substances. And we um, were realizing very firsthand what what a clear uh, impact that had on the child's ability to control or even understand their emotional responses. To be able to focus when they got into that kindergarten classroom and all of a sudden were being, you know, suspended or, or calls come all the time. Um, learning to read. Um, one of these, you know, uh, developmental processes that takes so many different parts of your brain to all come together and figure out how to tackle a new task. Uh, and it, it seemed um, very unfair that a large proportion of children, um, especially in urban Boston where we were working, um, had these environmental factors that were just decreasing their healthy developmental trajectory. However, at the same time, the research has really supported that having supportive parent-child relationships, having health-promoting environments really does help buffer children against those sources of toxic stress. So this was my mental framework kind of entering pediatrics that I really wanted to help support those early relationships. And I just had a fascinating experience after my residency in Seattle when I did a year of primary care outside of Seattle through um, a group practice that really practiced right where that star is, which is where Microsoft is. Um, these practices were in Redmond, Redmond Ridge and Bellevue and many, many of the families that sought care at our practice worked for Microsoft. They were early tech adopters, and this was 2010. So it was 2010, 2011, when the iPhone had been out for about three years, uh, the iPad was just coming out. And in the clinic exam room with me, I found all of these families coming in with little computers. And it was just a fascinating change. Um, it's, this is when my interest in di the digital media environment really peaked because I saw you know, children being soothed with a mobile gaming um, handheld system. I saw um, parents responding to their anxiety about whatever diagnosis I was telling them, even if it was something like Coxsackie, looking up all the symptoms and double checking what I was saying. I was seeing parents Skyping in because they couldn't come to the appointment. So, so it was a really, it seemed like a really dramatic change in the interpersonal interactions that could occur in the clinic exam room, but also extrapolating that to home, potentially um, changing the ways that interpersonal or familial interactions were happening as well. So to put this all together, this is kind of the story of my training. 
of how I came to the point of really caring both about early childhood relationships and also really caring about this novel technology that was kind of disrupting our lives in, the, in that 2010 range. And then I went to fellowship at Boston Medical Center when at that time the adoption of mobile devices in homes of zero to eight-year-olds was really not saturated yet. But by the time I you know, got my first K award, my, my K award from NICHD in 2017, it was almost universal that children had access to smartphones. Most of them had access to tablets. And this sort of a rapid rise in ownership and access to mobile technology really felt like whiplash to a lot of parents. Um, they were adjusting to the fact that these devices were both so uh, engaging to children. They could take their attention and keep them quiet for so long, but at the same time, they had these concerns about whether it was truly educational, um, you know, what it was displacing and how much it was becoming a preferred activity for a lot of children. And it's not only, um, oh, I'm sorry, I added this just this morning because this, this is a, a blog that's been going around during um, the past couple days um, from about parent stress during uh, coronavirus school closures. And I think that the, this, this photo just really captures the, the ambivalence that we feel about the role of mobile screens and our children's behavior. Where this, many of us as families of young kids are totally overwhelmed. We've never been asked to do work from home and uh, or having lost our jobs or other folks who are, who are out of jobs right now. So the stresses of that, combined with the stresses of worries about illness and the pandemic, combined with the fact that our kids are home, they no longer have the community of school or the independence that they had from us before by saying goodbye every day uh, and going to do their own thing. And now we're supposed to try and keep them occupied somehow so we can get work done. So I thought this was just a perfect picture of they've tried everything with you know, probably taking the cushions off of the couch and building forts and other things, but nothing just keeps that child as, as quiet and calm um, as being able to just sit down and watch a story. This looks like it is um, Tumbleleaf um, that they're watching. I don't know if any of you have young kids who watch Tumbleleaf, but it's, it's a very nice uh, kind of creative program. But again, I think parents have a lot of ambivalence of the fact that their kids um, are so easily soothed and calmed down by uh, these, these new objects that are, that are in our homes. Um, so data from Common Sense Media has been tracking how the patterns of children's media use. About every two to three years, they release these surveys. And you can see that between 2011 and 2017, um, it's not only the access to mobile devices, but the amount of time that kids are spending on media um, has really grown by you know, almost tenfold that, that it is now taking place on one of these mobile devices that can be moved from room to room, it can be taken to bedtime, it can be um, you know, taken in the car, and it has more interactive features than just TV, which is still the primary thing that children are, are playing, uh, um, are watching, but um, TV is largely unidirectional, whereas mobile devices have a lot more interactive features. So I'll be talking about why instead of just using a research term such as screen time, my research has really tried to characterize the design features that are interacting with children's psychology um, because this is becoming so much of a larger proportion of the time that children are spending on screen devices. I mean, it's not just children who have more access to mobile devices. This is data from 2016, so it's already out of date, but it is showing that um, at that time, amongst the uh, adults who were in the 18 to about 44 to, uh, years old, the vast majority of them were smartphone owners. Um, and this matters because smartphones are so much more than just a phone. They contain our email, they contain our social lives, they contain our entertainment, uh, they contain news about coronavirus, right? So they have so much more of a psychological relationship with adults um, and with parents who now feel their attention stretched in multiple different directions. So this became an important consideration in some of my research because I felt like this is a different beast. This is different than just a parent watching TV. This is different than a parent just reading a book. 
um, this is this is a, of a different nature, and I felt like we needed to explore it in ways that really captured the multimodal and multifaceted ways that these small handheld computers um, interact with our behavior. Now, one thing that I often have heard while I'm doing this research is that uh, you know all new technologies are disruptive. They all make us feel a little bit unsteady or unsure when we're adopting them into our homes, right? So the printing press was extremely disruptive to oral histories, or the telephone was extremely disruptive to people who like to write letters. And, and it really made the pace of being able to communicate so much faster. You didn't have to wait days to get that letter. You had this instantaneous communication of news with the radio. Um, and so we often have to change a lot of our day-to-day -day behaviors or expectations or even conceptualizations of what we expect um, based on the, uh, the new technologies that come into our lives. So, you know, many people have said, well, it's no different. This is a new technology that we just have to learn to adapt our lives to um, and get used to. But I think the main thing that um, parents have said to me in my interview studies is that this is happening so much faster than uh, occurs with, you know, say the clothes washer. Looks like it took decades to reach 100% of United States households. Same thing with the telephone. Whereas um, the uh, cell phone, internet, computer, all really had a much um, higher slope. They're, they were adopted, you know, within a decade. And that was just a much larger, um, a much faster pace of adoption that takes a, it takes more energy to adjust to. It feels more disruptive because every time something new comes in, we have to uh, expect that another thing is coming in right after it. So here's an example. Um, this is data that I took from the internet, so I cannot, I can't find a source for it. So um, just, just take that with a grain of salt. But I do think that it gives a general estimate of what um, about the time frame that this type of uh, technology adoption occurred in. And it's accelerating over time, which makes it harder to research it, right? Like we can't come up with the grant funding and carry out the study and publish the study in the same time frame that new, uh, new gadgets are coming out. So it makes the research very challenging, but it also makes it more challenging for parents who are digital immigrants and are not as used to just, you know, gobbling up the next new um, app or platform and understanding how to use it, what the security risks are, um, what the communication risks might be, what the benefits could be. Um, so this feels very overwhelming to parents. And you could see that, you know, Pokemon Go reached 50 million global users in 19 days. So it is, it feels impossible as a researcher to keep up with that pace, but it feels impossible as a society as well. So I think what I want you as an audience to take away from this is not that it's futile, it's not that it's, there's no point in trying to keep up with all this, but it's to understand the anxiety that this elicits, both in us as clinicians and in um, users and in the families. So you may have um, families who feel, uh, you know, overwhelmed with the fact that their children want more and more of this, but they don't have the digital savviness to know how to support them. Um, the other thing, um, Anya Kamenetz is an NPR reporter who wrote, um, if you want to read a book on this, she wrote The Art of Screen Time, which is a really balanced research-driven book published a few years ago. She made the point that when you have this mismatch between the pace of the technology adoption and the lack of research keeping up with it, you get this vacuum, a vacuum of evidence. And we have evidence that we wrote the AAP guidelines on in 2016 that was mostly about TV. It was not mostly about mobile technology use. We're getting more and more research on mobile tech, but um, when you've got this vacuum of research, you get parents just fending for themselves, making it up as they go along, and hearing lots of different polarized messages about what's the best way to do this. You know, these are two articles that I, I Googled when I made this slide, and I just wrote child screen time, and I got two extremely different narratives about how dangerous this is or how much we're all overreacting. And neither of those messages really support parents in making a decision in the absence of evidence 
you know, all it does is make them feel guilty or feel like there's not a right way to do things. So what I've chosen to do is try to research this topic in a way that is really trying to meet the parent where they are. It's seeing things from a parent or child's perspective. I want to do it in a way that's more actionable. It's built into daily routines. So you can think about when does tech come into our day and when is it helpful and when is it not? And also, where is it interrupting our serve and return interactions that are so important to help you know, build that parent-child relationship that I was talking about before? And when is it, you know, when is it okay that we each you know, get our own time to relax? And finally, as a bigger picture issue, I'm not gonna talk about this today, but I've also been really focused on how we can make digital media that's designed in a way that appreciates the child's relational and developmental needs. And what I mean by that is that right now we have a lot of interactive media that is designed to grab adults' attention and to get adults to click things and spend money. And this is not a developmentally sensitive or appropriate way to design media for kids, but it's often just slapped onto app design or other interactive media design for kids. So one of my other kind of advocacy standpoints has been to say, we need to change the design of kids' digital environments in order to really help parents establish healthy um, balance for their kids between online and offline activities, or to help build healthier relationships between parents and their media and kids in their media. So if you're interested in that idea of, of you know, digital environment design as a public health issue, I wrote an editorial in The Hill last spring which you can Google, um, but it's you know, really trying to get at the idea um, that we need to change the environment to really establish healthy behaviors. We can't just expect every single user and every single parent to be the gatekeepers to their children's digital media use in an environment that's very, very um, uh, uh, engagement promoting and um, profit driven. Okay, so that I've tried to lay out right now my rationale for why I care about seeing media from an early childhood relationship framework. I want to meet parents and kids where they're at. I want to understand how these early childhood um, interactions are being potentially disrupted uh, by either parents or children's media use. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how the design affordance of mobility, of taking media into all of our usual spaces and routines um, can impact parent-child interaction. This is um, the research that I started actually in my fellowship. So I think Rob really remembers me kind of working on, on these methods. And I was largely inspired by the research on background TV and parent-child interaction. Um, this had, all, had shown um, that when the TV is on, adults and children talk less to each other. Children initiate interactions less with their parents. They have less sustained or complex play interactions. And this is actually correlated with lower or smaller um, child vocabulary in the toddler years. So background TV, we know, you know, creates an audiovisual stimulus that can be distracting. It takes our attention away from that serve and return interaction that occurs during play that helps, helps children sustain their attention, build language, and other early developmental um, milestones. So what I did to try to do my very first project on this was to try to look at when you have a screen that can actually come into an interpersonal space with you, what does that look like? Um, this was a really hard study to design because I kept making so many assumptions about what mobile screens would do to our interactions. And I had a really great mentor, Mike Silverstein, who told me at the time, you know what, just observe. You don't need to come in with any preconceived hypotheses yet. You should just go be an, um, an anthropologist. And so we did just ethnographic anonymous observations of families eating with their young kids all around Boston. These were naturalistic because I wanted to capture mobile device use as it would arise in the moment, not something contrived like during a lab, um, you know, lab experiment. And of these 55 families that we took really, really detailed field notes on, um, about three quarters of them used a device in some way. And a bunch of them, about 16, had really heavy absorption. Like they just took out the device right away. They were looking at it and scrolling through it most of the time. And those parents had less conversation with their kids, took longer for the parent to respond. Um, and there was more conflict where, where some children were really trying to get their parents' attention and get it unglued from, from looking at the device. 
Now this picture is just an example of how we might sit across from. This is not an actual picture from our study. I just wanted to show like we would be sitting at the booth next to them and taking field notes. And this was considered ethical because we weren't recording any identifiable information. We would not write down any names if we heard them. And we told the IRB that if anyone seemed uncomfortable with us observing them, that we would stop immediately. And that actually didn't happen. Um, sometimes the families would even like look over to us to be like, hey, can you believe my kids being this crazy? Um, so it was, a, it was a really interesting study. It got a lot of press attention. It was kind of the first to really look at what happens when um, mobile technology comes into our meals. And I followed up on that with um, a study in academic pediatrics the next year where we used data that had already been collected. This was a cohort study run by my current mentor, Julie Lemang. And she had enrolled 225 low-income parent-child pairs. Um, and they were studying feeding behaviors, obesity risk, and other um, outcomes. They were not looking at media at all. But they did this standardized eating protocol where they offered the child and the parent four different foods. Some of them were familiar, some of them were totally novel foods meant to kind of stress the child out and see if they would taste it and see how the parent would encourage or discourage or talk to the child during that novel eating interaction. So this was a boring task because it, they were given four minutes with each food and sometimes the food was not that interesting. And so about a quarter of moms um, used their mobile device during that boring downtime. And so we were able to code that, that device using moms compared to non-device users, and these were all moms, so I'm not specifically honing in on moms, but this, it was just moms enrolled in this specific study. Um, they had significantly fewer verbal and non-verbal interactions with their kids during the whole meal, um, during the whole eating protocol, less encouragements. And then in a separate study, we analyzed a different, um, an interview uh, that had been done called the working model of the child interview. This is an, a semi-structured interview that gets at um, mothers working mental models of who their children are, what are the motivations for their behaviors. Um, and moms who use their devices had less rich, reflective, and sensitive mental working models of their child's behavior and personality. So unclear if this is a family that already was having relationship dysfunction and uh, those moms were more likely to use technology during meals or whether the technology was somehow interrupting opportunities to understand your child's mind, um, understand their behavior. Interestingly, there were no associations with parenting style or maternal depression. Now, these were both observational studies that I just described. Um, they don't show causality, right? They're just correlating uh, mobile device use with observed behaviors. Um, this is a study that I didn't do, but it was out of Kathy Hirsch-Pasek's lab and Roberta Galinka, and they actually mani experimentally manipulated um, parents' mobile device use just by texting them and have them doing something brief in the middle of a structured word learning task. So this preschooler and a parent were brought in. The parent was coached on how to teach their child a new word and half of them were interrupted. And you can see on the blue um, bar, the, the dyads whose parent was interrupted in the middle of teaching with a brief phone interaction learned less effectively, even though they went through exactly the same teaching task. So this was the first experimental evidence that we had that that disruption of joint attention um, or of the, the cascades of parent and child interaction could potentially impact children's, uh, what children took away from that interaction. This is another experimental study done by a group out of New York um, that uh, modified the still face protocol. So if you don't know what that is, Ed Tronic is a developmental psychologist in Boston who created this still face paradigm where a parent and an infant um, play together in the first segment, then mo the mother puts on a still face. This is kind of to um, represent this sort of flattened affect uh, of, of depression. And then afterwards they have a reunion phase where the, where the parent consoles the child after the, usually the infant has gotten kind of dysregulated and upset um, during this uh, lack of affect from the parent. So instead they use um, the parent looking at a cell phone instead of the still face. And the reason I want to show you these results is you can see that the um, child had an increase in negative affect, decrease in positive affect, 
um, less engagement with the mother, making lots of social bids um, during the still face. So that's pretty similar to what would happen in a typical still face, um, not very surprising. But what was important from the next slide here, sorry, this is busy, but it's just an important concept, so I wanted to get to it. So the repair phase of that still face, where you've just had this disruption, the child's upset, the parent has been, mind has been elsewhere. The repair phase is what's really important to children's social and emotional development. When you have a disruption with your child, but you come back and you can say, hey, sorry about that, or you're feeling upset, or let me, hand, let me help you handle this. That repair phase is actually where a lot of the learning about who am I and how am I feeling and how should I handle these emotions happens. So they asked moms how often they use their device around their child. And they found that greater parent device use was associated with less infant positive affect and less engagement with the mother during that repair or reunion phase. So that suggests reduced recovery following a disruption in parent-infant interaction. Um, and I mentioned this because I, um, after my first few studies, some people said, well, don't kids just get used to it? You know, don't kids just get used to the fact mom's looking at that, I'm okay, I'll go do something else. Um, in this case, it, it sounds like when it is heavy uh, technology use that's disrupting these moments of disruption and repair, um, more often uh, it can uh, interfere with the ability for, that, for parents and children to kind of co-regulate together um, and handle those moments of distress. Now, think about where we are right now. Parents and, and children are gonna have lots of moments of distress dealing with the frustration and stress um, during COVID. So I have been encouraging parents to really create boundaries around their own technology use, both because it stresses us out to be reading the news all the time and looking at the numbers of, you know, of new cases, but also because um, you know, it arouses us as parents and then it can make it harder to then look at uh, what your child is going through, be sensitive to what they must be thinking because kids, kids act off when they're stressed out by things. They might be acting out more, they may be having trouble sleeping. And so um, for us to really help them through, like if we consider this our, our repair or our reunion phase of helping our kids build some resilience through a really stressful time, it's gonna take a little bit more of getting in their minds and figuring out how to help them understand the emotions that they're feeling and what to do about them. And that's a lot harder when our minds are on our technology compared to um, on what our kids are feeling. Um, I will just whiz through this slide because I know um, we have about 20 minutes left. But we did a study looking at how this affects things over time. So this was a six month study where parents were asked how much technology interference um, happens during their activities with their children. And so what we found is that over time, more technology interference has a small but significant correlation with later externalizing behavior in their kids. Meaning over time, this matters. If it's displacing a lot of parent-child activities, child behavior is worse over time. But an important point here is that externalizing behavior also increases our parenting stress and makes us more likely to withdraw into our devices during parent-child activities, right? So we can't just say, parents, put your phone away. We also have to help parents build the skills and the understanding of how to manage kids' behavior. Um, I also wanna just point out that we've also been studying how um, on-demand uh, mobile media use might also be displacing moments for kids to know how to handle their distress. Um, Sanjani Raman, who was a DBP fellow um, around the same time as us, looked at how mobile devices were more likely to be used during home routines, such as meals um, in toddlers with social emotional delays. And then um, in a survey, I looked at how toddlers with more social emotional delays on a standardized scale had two to three more times um, higher odds of being given a mobile device to calm down or to keep them quiet. So this is um, something we're gonna be thinking about right now a lot too, is when our kids are being more, showing bigger emotions, are we using mobile technology to just get, you know, to lower their affect down a little bit? Um, and then how are you gonna transition them off of it instead of finding a way to use this as a teachable moment? You know, right now in my house, I have a big chalkboard where I've drawn out the zones of regulation. Are you in the blue zone, the green zone, the yellow zone, the red zone? I'm seeing this as a moment where we're all checking in with our zones and we figure out how to handle them. 
rather than saying, oh my gosh, I just need to check out um, and watch The Mandalorian, which I do sometimes. So, um, and I want to also let you know that I, I've interviewed parents about this because I don't want this to come off as judgmental of parents. Parents have never been pulled in so many directions to work and friends, to all the just crazy amount of information that's available on the internet and how they now have to multitask between work brain and child brain. Um, and how some parents really feel like they're being manipulated by the phone and the phone's got this hook that's pulling them in. And that's really inspired me to, to look more at persuasive design and how it affects our, um, our relationships with media. So like I, I'm going back to my framework is that, you know, I've talked about how mobility kind of gets in the way of parent-child, um, you know, day-to-day -day interactions. Right now I'm going to focus just for a few minutes on how interactive design and persuasive design might in in interact with our um, parents' psychological characteristics or children's psychological characteristics. Um, these are two books that were written about persuasive design, how to build habit-forming products, how to build products that just you know, are frictionless and don't make me think. So, so this is user experience design. That, that means that when you're on a, a website, it's, it may be a, a nice fluid experience that's easy to use, but it also may be trying to get you to do things that you didn't intend to do. If you've ever gone shopping for a hotel and you see that little button that's like, five other people are trying to book this hotel right now, right? Those are persuasive design techniques that try to nudge your behavior in different directions. And this is done through rewards, through likes, through virtual currency. Um, it can be through, you know, an algorithmic narrowing of the feed that arrives on your YouTube um, homepage that kind of knows what you like and is giving you more of that. Um, and uh, th this is, there's a large, uh, you know, literature building about the way that this interacts with adult psychology um, and how attention grabbing or emotion arousing features really get us to click. I mean, the idea of clickbait to um, about parenting is also a really important topic is that we are much more likely to click and read articles that have this big emotional valence to them. And that doesn't necessarily help us as parents um, calm down and solve the problem. So what I'm gonna focus on for a little bit is not about persuasive design and adult psychology because I, you know, I mostly have just heard from interviews with parents that yes, they, they feel they feel like Candy Crush is calling them or they feel like their virtual pet is like, you know, sending them notifications and it's, uh, it's both fun and exhausting at the same time. That social media is an excitement and exhaustion. Um, right now I'm going to focus a little bit on the mismatch between interactive design and kids and how kids learn. Because if you open any app, especially free apps that are on the app store, you will see tons of these interactive and persuasive features. There are rewards, there's sound effects. I mean, have you played Fruit Ninja? It is so satisfying, all these like swishing and <clears throat> slicing and all the little stars and things that pop up. This is so, um, I don't use the word addictive. I, I use the word, because um, I don't think it's a, it's a clinical um, addiction located within the individual. I think there's, this is located within the digital environment that is kind of bringing us back. And, and um, you know, I think a more appropriate term for it is engagement promoting or engagement prolonging, because we want to come back, get to the next level, um, go on to the next episode. Um, there's limited research about this, but it makes it harder to transition away from tablets uh, in one study, having autoplay on, which is, you know, makes total sense. A lot of us have experienced that, that feeling of trying to tear our kids away when an, uh, an episode is advancing. Um, but what we've also been studying is how all these interactive features, like these are real screenshots. You know, how many animals and balloons and presents and candies and stars and bubbles can you have on one screen? Um, so, so when you have all of these extraneous features that get put in apps, they've actually been shown to lower kids' comprehension from the educational goals of, you know, say the ebook that they're trying to learn. Um, and I'd, I'd encourage you to look into some of my mentee, Tiffany Munzer's work, where we, we use these little critter books, um, which I love, in an ebook, a print book, and an enhanced ebook format. And we found that especially in that enhanced ebook format, there was less parent and toddler verbal interaction. Kids just wanted to grab the tablet and do it by themselves. And that led to more kind of control uh, battles back and forth. So 
the interactive features and their design really matter. And you can have calmer or less distracting interactive features um, that are much more present in well-designed apps like Sesame, you know, Sesame Street or um, PBS Kids or others that have put a lot of thought into it. So I'm gonna just wrap up this section by talking about some of the content analysis that we've been doing of kids' apps. Um, we've been looking at advertising and how the banner ads contain inappropriate content such as 10 bipolar facts to learn um, right under this surprise egg um, app. Um, how we get pop-up ads like this one for Run Sausage Run, which is kind of gory, but it was popping up in like, the middle of a Hello Kitty drawing um, app. Um, and it's really hard to X out in that little X in the corner. We're looking at the ways that um, apps are trying to encourage kids to watch more advertising videos. So you can see on this Masha and the Bear app on the right, that purple button is asking kids to watch more videos in exchange for more can virtual candy. So these are very, very common. Um, and we've, um, when this study was published, we had a, um, we asked for um, an FTC uh, complaint um, through to, to, to investigate some of the advertising practices for kids. Um, there are rewards for prolonged gameplay, such as coming back to see these, you know, virtual grandparents every day. After day seven, you get a present. I mean, kids are very susceptible to these sorts of rewards and daily presents, and it can lead to battles that, that parents just don't need. Um, there's also encouragements, like in this case, to, um, to make in-app purchases. So, so in this case, Blueberry Muffin is asking you to make a special cake with the blueberry dye. The blueberry dye is locked and you can unlock it for $1.99. Um, and so if you don't use the locked item, she tells you to eat the cake yourself. So it is just an inappropriate amount of character pressure on kids to make in-app purchases. And we've also um, worked with advocacy groups to try to get complaints filed about these sorts of pressures. And um, these, these have actually been called out in recent, a recent bill by Senator Markey's office. And I think Senator Blumenthal also from Connecticut. Um, and I just wanted to show you some of the new stuff we're doing for, um, tracking kids' tablets. Um, we have been tracking the mobile devices used by about 350 preschoolers um, in Michigan. And for Android, we are using an app that we've developed that runs uh, in the background and just gives us kind of second to second data on what kids are doing. Um, in the um, iPhone and uh, iPads, they take screenshots. So they, they show us the battery percentage and take a screenshot so we can see how long they were using different apps for. So you can see that a lot of the apps that kids are using the most of are YouTube or YouTube Kids, um, streaming video, or um, kind of more older, or, uh, older child or adult games, more like the Talking Tom, um, Clash of Clans, um, you know, kind of more uh, a little bit more gamified, a lot more of those um, persuasive features. So you can see that that is correlated with a lot more time on device. This is a daily average amongst all of our Android users. So you could see that any, you know, any content that has a lot more of that autoplay, that tailored content, um, delivering you just what you want and with lots of rewards, that's the most of what kids are doing. And it's probably also they're doing it because it's, it's free. Um, and it is, um, you know, a lot less that kids are using educational apps or video chat or things like that. We're also finding some really inappropriate content on kids' devices, such as Terrorist Shooter 3D or Granny. And um, so we'll be, you know, trying to uh, work with the app stores to put a bit more filters on um, what kids can get access to through their tablets. You know, these are just three examples of apps that we found that, that preschoolers were playing. We also found that they're collecting a lot of data and sharing them with third parties. So that's um, hopefully a paper we'll have coming out in the next year, just showing the amount of digital identifiers that are actually being collected through kids' apps, which is, which is not um, compliant with child privacy laws. Okay, I'm gonna wrap up in the next five minutes just with some, um, how did, you know, what are your takeaways for talking to parents about these topics? I know I've gone through a lot of our research that's really been looking at, right, number one, this is all moving so fast, it's hard to do anything based on, you know, really clear evidence. Number two, these devices are now pervasive in our households. They disrupt some of our parent-child interaction. What can we do about that? And number three, the design of media isn't always matching with our needs as parents 
or our kids needs in their developmental or relational needs. So let's go through how you would talk about this with parents. Um, about the rapid adoption, um, this has a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of parent on parent judging. Um, th there's a lot of pressures of how to keep up with your work life and your social life and research isn't keeping pace. So I would just recommend that you meet parents where they are, use humor, use your shared human experience about how we're all trying to figure this out as we go and to build awareness of how we wanna build a relationship with technology and role model that for our children. Um, and to be aware of your own subconscious responses um, to technology. What I mean by subconscious is like, we all have a little bit of a bias into whether we're very pro-technology or anti-technology. During today's talk, you may have been a little bit annoyed at how much I'm you know, either critical of technology or not critical enough, right? We all have a little bit of those those biases. So, so we kind of have to check ourselves about that. Um, and instead of kind of saying to parents, you're doing this wrong, really just help them identify what are, you, what are the realistic problems that you can solve? Like, where is this interfering with your family getting what your family needs? You know, where are these devices just leading to more conflict? And how can you, how can we help build your self-efficacy to um, take some of those apps or those um, habits out of rotation in your family? Now, when it comes to the mobility issue, um, you know, we all know that use of technology in interpersonal spaces reduces the quality and quantity of verbal and nonverbal interaction. Um, and it's, it's, its use during daily routines and to manage distress is linked with social emotional delays in cross-sectional research, right? Not, not yet with any causality. But we also have to recognize that this could be a means of parents withdrawing and coping and managing their own stress or getting social support. So in order to change any behavior, we have to recognize the function that it's playing, right? This is, this is basic behavioral um, approaches is you have to find a replacement behavior. If you're using media as a stress reliever, what are your other stress relievers? How can you do those and maybe even do those with your kids right now? Um, you know, where can you just build into your environment the tech, places the tech goes and places the tech doesn't go? Where are you gonna charge your phone so that it's just not buzzing you when you're in the middle of a meal? So having those kind of practical conversations um, is important to, to making sure that it's just less easy to access and grab whenever we're feeling a little bit of downtime or boredom or distress. Um, and it can be a little bit more out of sight, out of mind. I really want parents to be more aware of the way that interactive and persuasive design isn't always trying to support their own interests. And that a lot of times it's trying to, to support financial interests of the app developer or the platform. And, and because these designs are so sticky, they want us coming back day after day. They're difficult for exhausted parents and young brains to resist. So, so I want parents to understand, you know, you've got to be really savvy about whether apps are truly educational. You can trust the ones from PBS Kids or other, you know, um, nonprofits. But just because something says educational in the app store does not mean it's actually going to help your child learn new things. Um, and I want parents to feel more digitally literate so you can use tech in more intentional ways. Like how are, this is the perfect time to be thinking about this. Like how are we gonna use technology to get our kids connected to their teachers, you know, through Google Meet? How, are, how is my 10 year old going to now use email, which he's never used before, to chat with his buddies that he misses, you know, to give him that social connection? Um, how are we going to use technology on a weekly basis to all chill out together and have a family movie night, right? So you're, you're thinking purposively about why you're using it rather than just reacting, grabbing, oh, just let's just do this now because I just can't take any more stress, right? And helping parents role model this for their kids. Shared media use helps you role model and monitor a little bit better because um, you know, you're there watching your kid's reaction to their favorite YouTube videos or, or what they're seeing in a movie. Here are some concrete resources with um, <clears throat> Common Sense Media. Like I said, I have that conflict of interest with some research funding for them, but they are a nonprofit that provides free reviews of different media and whether it's age appropriate. PBS Kids um, also has a lot of tips for parents about ways to kind of nudge your kids off media <laughs> after they've watched. What can you do in real life to apply that knowledge? At the American Academy of Pediatrics, we created a, a family media plan where you can plug in your child's name and um, none of it is saved, you know, fine privacy wise, but with their ages, you can look at um, 
some of our menu of different guidelines of how you can implement this with your family. This is a new uh, website just developed during the COVID outbreak called Wide Open School, um, which has collected a whole lot of higher quality online resources for different things like daily schedules, emotional well-being. So um, parents are being bombarded with different ideas of how to manage their kids at home right now. And I like that Common Sense is kind of putting it all in one place and trying to vet it um, before parents access it. For screen-free activities, the Children's Screen Time Action Network has this resource library um, where you, they've really been focusing on how to manage as a family when you're all home together and you don't want to spend the entire day on a screen. Okay, so I will wrap up. I'm sorry for not leaving as much time for questions, but I will um, definitely uh, either stick around a little longer or answer them uh, by, by email. Um, so thank you for your attention. <laughs> I wish I could see faces and kind of know how you're all doing, um, but um, I'll wrap up now just for, for questions. And thank you to this. This is just my, my research mentors, my study teams, and my funding right now. Thanks. Jenny, thank you. That was great. And um, I'm super excited and happy to hear all of the stuff that you talked about and how it's so especially useful now for parents and families as we're in this new age of telehealth and everybody's at home socially distancing and struggling with all of these things. I'm also happy that my residents are hearing some of the same messaging from another person that's not me. Um, but this was great and wonderful. And we have a bunch of questions, actually. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you. You both. And, uh, we have a, a number of questions. I'm not sure we're going to be able to get through all of them. The first one is, uh, you say that this online world is too overwhelming for parents to manage alone and that we need to look for uh, to the design of children's media. Should the FTC or other government entity return to the days where a certain amount of children's content was mandated and that the content meets certain standards? Uh, what could be the role of the federal oversight? Yeah, there's a, um, you know, there is federal oversight of children's TV, but not of internet-based platforms that children use. Um, part of the confusion here is that lots of internet-based internet platforms that children use aren't intended for children, such as YouTube Maine. So there, there's been a lot of back and forth about whether those, those sites should be regulated. And right now, it's just been a self-regulatory approach. Um, so the Markey and Blumenthal um, Kids Act, the stands for Kids Internet Design and Safety Act, is trying to take this sort of regulations that um, are applied for TV, like quality, age-appropriate content, you know, that you're not going to have interactive design that's trying to pressure your four-year-old to buy things, um, that you're not going to have instant access to, you know, terrorist shooter 3D um, or other inappropriate content. Um, this, it, you know, addresses things like marketing and spread of misinformation and things like that. So I'm hoping that as things get back to normal and they're able to work on legislation more, that some of that legislation will move forward, but you need an enforcement body. And the FTC um, just doesn't have a lot of people right now. So they would need funding to build up the FTC. In like the UK, they have something called the Information Commissioner's Office, which is just about tech and the way it interacts with the human users. And you know, we, there's been talk about there needing to be a body like that in the US as well. Uh, the next question is, uh, wait, wait, did you just say you use a chalkboard at home? Yes, I have a chalkboard wall. Um, uh, I use tons of visual schedules. Um, you know, as Rob knows, my older son um, is, uh, was diagnosed on the autism spectrum when, when I was in fellowship. And so we use tons of visual schedules and, and things like that. So um, I encourage parents to do that all the time. Just, you know, make it visual. When we're, I think right now, kids' brains are buzzing, right? They, they have suddenly been out of school. They are watching their parents be stressed out. They might have like, you know, caught stuff on the news or worried about their grandparents, right? There's so many different things that we're all preoccupied with. And when you can make something visual and you pare it down for kids, you can get their attention more. And you can try and say, okay, first we're gonna do this, then we're gonna do this. Um, uh, rather than just trying to yell at them <laughs> or talk at them. Um, so, so, you know, as Rob probably does too, pairing a visual instruction with a verbal, a simple verbal instruction, you can cut through the noise a bit with your kids um, and get them to really hear your message um, and give you the social attention that you need. 
And Jenny, I like how you mentioned use of the zones of regulation too, which is a really nice um, skill and tool. And actually we utilize it here with our division of occupational therapy and trying to help kids and parents develop an emotional framework to talk about different feelings and emotions, create that vocabulary and those self-regulation strategies. And the sensory component, as I was saying about technology, you, you really just get this like audiovisual sensory component. You don't get the like, um, and a lot of it is like hyper-stimulated. Um, some of it is just takes you into this kind of like, I don't know, for kids who watch like slime videos and other things that just kind of carry you into this like zone. Um, it's very different from the other sensory information that they get from play or from the outdoors or things like that. So that's another thing I've been recommending during school closures is trying to get some rough and tumble play or some active play or some um, snuggling and reading and um, outdoors because kids need that variety of sensory uh, experience to really regulate. Thank you. We have uh, time for two more questions. And this one actually comes from an infectious disease uh, physician, Dr. El Shabib. Uh, in, this day, in this day and age of digitizing everything and as society moves towards the inevitable reality with screens everywhere that people and their kids are exposed to, where do you see this affecting kids' development in the future? You, you see this as negatively affecting future generations? Um, I think that there's been, I mean, so my lens is very much social and emotional. Right, so my main two concerns that I've been focusing on is that if you're so used to uh, mediated social interaction where everything's reduced to emojis or characters or GIFs, 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 I don't know. but you know, where you, um, some of that communication is, is really fun and effective, but it's not the same thing as the dynamic in the moment response to someone else's facial expression, someone else's posture, someone else's distress, right? So. So that sort of displacement of social interactions um, uh, or time in your own self and body and your own tolerance of your own emotional distress or boredom, um, those are the two things I've been focusing most on. But I do think um, what we don't know is like, what's the threshold? Like what's the good enough point of like, everyone wants a screen time you know, threshold I think it's, it's also a balance of like, where are you getting those experiences in other parts of your day? Um, and then is it okay to just kind of go into this little sensory chamber sometimes to blow off some steam? Um, and just, just from the infectious disease standpoint of this though, is like, as we've been um, rewriting the, we, we didn't rewrite the AAP guidelines, but we put out some tip sheets through the AAP to let parents know it's okay that your kids are gonna get more technology right now and you have to just use it in good ways. Um, I've been really thinking like technology is going to be a really important tool to help kids not spread this virus. And we're actually now going to want kids more kind of like stuck inside um, on devices, but therefore channel it in as positive ways as you can and then find other screen free activities that give you the sense of meaning and connection and healing that you need right now going through, you know, what's gonna feel like a long chronic traumatic stress for a lot of families, even if you don't lose someone that you love. Uh, I have one last question with a very, it needs a very short answer because we need to wrap up. A previous gener, this is from one of our neonatologists. Previous generation, only one parent worked, now both work and grandparent babysits and takes care of children. How much does this inhibit parent developing uh, uh, parenting skills? Mm. Um, no, I don't know if there's research on that. I know that um, the research on daycare was very, um, very controversial <clears throat> about how that um, impacted. I think, uh, I think it, the short answer would be that if you, you know, get good enough time with your kids on the evenings and weekends, you can get all those moments where you try to understand your child's mind, figure out how to help them through problems, figure out your own responses to your child. If you're just willing to put in some of that emotional work during the brief times that you're with your kids, I think that's good enough. But again, I don't actually know the research on that. Okay, wrap up. Uh, yeah, sure, okay. wrap up. There was one last quick question in there that was, can you shut off the in-app purchases within programs um, to prevent kids from wanting to buy things? You, um, it's a, not, not app by app. Um, I think you can set filters on the app store of what sort of things your children can install, but it's not the default setting, which bothers me because parents <laughs> then have to navigate a little web to, um, 
to get through that. And that's, I want things like that to be the default. Right. And I think that um, when we talk with behavioralism with parents, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So whenever yeah. you do see those games and apps that are for free, they, they come at the cost of either hidden advertisements or in-app purchases. Or your data. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, yeah. Jenny. I'll let Dr. Salazar wrap you, up. Keeping him six feet apart, which is the way we should do it. So uh, Jenny and Rob, thank you very much. Uh, welcome again to the new era of, of, of the digital world. Uh, we hope to have you here uh, sometime soon. I know you were scheduled to come and give a, a series at the Pond House. Uh, we'll reschedule that for, for next year. It was a wonderful presentation. So again, thank you to you. Thank you to Rob. Thank you to Anne Melanie, who is uh, uh, logged in directly from uh, her, her house. Um, I have a new picture of her with her horse, which is wonderful. So Anne, thank you. Hope you're doing well. And, uh, and good to see everyone. We'll see you again next week. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone.